0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. March 30th, 2023, the Why Netanyahu Blinked edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. We're in the midst of technical difficulty after cascading technical difficulty, led by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime. Hello, John.
1: Well, I would like to say that I am not uh, embracing the idea that I led anything. It happened to me. Everything on my end is just fine. Thank you very much.
0: The only person who has not had cascading technical, technical difficulties this morning is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. And if John's audio sounds a little funky, it's because of some problems we're having that we're trying to sort, but not to worry. This week on the GabFest, the political forces that are tearing Israel apart. Is Israeli democracy in danger? Then will TikTok be banned, be forced to sell, be tarred and feathered, be compelled to wear a dunce cap and sit in the corner? What is behind the campaign against the incredibly popular app? Then we will talk about the question of whether Chris Christie is really running for president and does he have a chance? Yes, we will talk about that. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Israel has temporarily stepped back from its worst civil conflict in decades. Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has delayed his plan to push through a bill in the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, that would have weakened the power of the country's pretty independent Supreme Court and given the legislative branch more power to appoint judges and possibly helped protect Bibi from a corruption prosecution. Netanyahu and his extremely right-wing coalition, which is dominated by ultra-religious Jews and supporters of Israeli settlements, are really determined to weaken the secular-dominated Supreme Court, which they see as undermining their democratic majority in the country. So, Emily, you wrote about this for the Times this week. How does what Bibi is trying to do track with what's happened in other countries in the region, in Poland, and Turkey, and Hungary? And actually, even in Mexico, next door to us, where democratically elected leaders have entrenched themselves by gutting independent bodies, especially courts, or in Mexico's case, electoral electoral bodies, to give themselves longer lasting, more durable, less challengeable power.
2: So I'm glad we're starting here. Um, in the last, I would say, like 12 or 15 years, When you get elected to office and then you use your majority to try to weaken the judicial system, it's turned into a sign that democracy could be in real trouble. It's hard to see it in real time, right? I mean, I think Bibi has been using this to his advantage, or at least he tried to, by arguing that the reforms he was asking for were necessary in order to increase the power of elected representatives over the unelected judges, right? That sort of formulation makes it sound like, oh, these judges are um, a kind of, you know, elite cabal taking power away from the people, the the flip side of that, though, is that when you look at, for example, how Viktor Orban rose to power in Hungary, what you see is that he got elected with his conservative party, came to office in 2011, and then the first thing they do is to try to change how you appoint people to what is their constitutional court. And then you kind of capture the court. And once you've done that, in some kinds of democracies, there really are no other checks and balances. So that's the issue. It's not that you can't reform courts. And we can talk more about that if you want. It's that Israel has a very weak system in terms of checks and balances. There's a single House of Parliament, the Knesset. There's no real separation between the Knesset and the government, meaning the ministries and Netanyahu um, as the prime minister. And it's... And there's no federalism system, right? So you don't have power that resides in the states. Given all of that, taking away the diminishing the power of the Israeli Supreme Court is a very big deal. And we can talk more about that if you want. Like, there's no written constitution in Israel. And so, how the court came to have its powers was a kind of choice that the court made. Um, which is interesting history. But the result here could be a real slide to one party rule in Israel, even though that's not what Bibi says he's doing. And it's a little hard to know in advance that that would actually result.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is weird to think. I mean, it, it requires some actual intell- uh, intellectual labor to make the case that this move, which which seems to be to make the courts more responsive to democratically elected officials, has this perversely anti-democratic impact.
1: I mean, that's his rationale. Which doesn't mean it's a
0: true rationale. Right. No, it is. It isn't. It's is his claim, but it actually yeah. is not.
2: Right. I mean, one thing that I think helped Israelis see that this could be just a naked power grab is that Netanyahu is facing trial on corruption charges that predate this recent election of his. And so he says, of course, that these things have nothing to do with each other. But I think that— adds a certain, you know, level of, like, contradiction here. I should say that this idea of overhauling the court is probably not Netanyahu's originally. It comes from other people in his government. The far-right parties are very eager for this. The Israeli Supreme Court has been a kind of symbol of secular, more moderate, more pluralistic Israel for years, really since the 90s, and has been designated a kind of enemy of right-wing and ultra-Orthodox communities. So that's the kind of underlying dynamic here.
1: I mean, this is a fight about the judicial system, but isn't it a bigger fight over really whether traditional nationalists uh, have been marginalized on the high court forever. It's, there's this the equivalent in Republican politics, which we've talked about unelected judges for years. They just happen now to have control of the unelected judges in the in the Supreme Court. So you hear less of it. But in the 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was the exact same. Uh, sounding argument. So it seems like it has that, um, connection to what we see in our country too, although it's obviously not the case anymore for conservatives.
2: Right. I mean, that's interesting that, you know, here we now have progressives who are re- really angry at the U S Supreme court and questions about whether we should diminish the power of our court. You know, our court is situated in a very different system where we actually have a lot of checks and balances. So I think you can make an argument that court for- reform could play out differently here, but you do have this, you know, ultimately a lot of how people feel about their Supreme Courts has to do with the outcomes they're reaching. And so that's why it's a different political coalition in each country.
0: I want to like make a couple of points. One is that it's really hard to argue by analogy. It's very in these cases where you're like, well, the U.S. Supreme Court is like such and such. And therefore, because different countries choose different recipes for maintaining their democratic institutions and preventing majoritarian thuggishness. It's like that's the tension of a democracy. It's like, how are you a democracy, but not a ma- Like a majoritarian, uh, there's not majoritarian thuggishness, to use, to repeat that word.
2: Well, a majoritarian effort to entrench oneself in office forever and deny basic rights to minority groups.
0: Right. And so some places, like in the the UK, you have a parliamentary system, but there's a very strong bureaucracy, and incredibly strong legal tradition, like a strong legal institutions. In the US, we have separation of powers and we have very strong local governments and other countries have come to other, other conclusions. And but the, in every case, you need forces that cut against centrality, concentrating too much power in one institution, majoritarianism, and and also cut against speedy change. Like you don't want any system that can be rapidly overhauled, where everything can be changed all at once. And so, so what's worrisome about Israel is like it the protections against those things are weaker than they are, perhaps, in other countries, because you can change things very quickly. And the only countervailing institution really remaining is this Supreme Court.
2: Exactly. And then you're... Coming, this is all coming to a head, and this is obviously why it's coming to a head now when the demographics are changing. And this, the most right wing coalition in Israel's history is in power. There is diminishing rates, especially for Arab Israelis and Palestinians. That's always been a problem in Israel. But more and more, um, the government is pushing toward that end. And, you know, one question is do the people who want to effectively get rid of the check of the Israeli Supreme Supreme Court are they? Do they want to annex the occupied territories? Is that like their plan for the West Bank? Um, and another, the tensions between secular and religious Israelis, because the number of ultra-orthodox people is really growing, and so they want different results than the Israeli Supreme Court has given them in the past on questions about, you know, who controls religious councils, who gets to whose conversions for um, Jews counts in terms of Israeli citizenship. There are all these questions swirling around, and the Israeli Supreme Court has kind of wound up trying to mediate some of them. You know, one thing, uh, um, Scott. Actually, in Australia, Rosalind Dixon said to me this week is that the stronger your court is sometimes in terms of standing up to majoritarian thuggishness or rule, the more they become a target of a government like this one elected on a thin majority, but seeing trying to seize its power to really change How Israel operates as a country. And that, I think, is what the protesters have grasped, that there is a tremendous amount of stake here in terms of the future of Israel.
1: I mean, because haven't those changes already been made to transfer authority uh, in the settlements in the West Bank? I mean, the, the changes are already taking place that you were talking about in the occupied territories.
2: Yeah, I mean the right. So a lot of the incrosions, the um, you know, gutting of Palestinian rights has has taken place, but the court stands there as I don't wanna exaggerate how much it has prevented or restrained, because it hasn't done that much, but it hasn't done nothing. And the idea of full-on annexation is a step that Israel has not taken yet. So, you know, it is important to note that I think for a lot of his Arab Israelis and Palestinians, this whole fight over Israel's identity feels separate from them. It doesn't feel like it's about their rights, So much as a fight among Jewish Israelis. Um, there are implications for pluralism writ large, but that is a kind of aspect of the conversation here.
0: I mean, it's been very evident for as long as the, the settlements have been have been expanding for as long as Israel has sort of made it clear it's going to hold on to the West Bank, that it's going to be it's impossible for Israel to maintain a liberal democracy like there's there's these two demographic facts that it's use facts on the ground these two demographic facts on the ground that are evident for israel one is that the secular majority that has dominated the country's politics for most of its history is if not already a minority it's headed for being outnumbered by religious nationalist jews even though that secular majority has been the force of, it's driven the country's wealth and prosperity. And then the second demographic crisis, which we're not talking about nearly enough, is that Jews are, if they're not already a minority in the land controlled by Israel, they will be a minority because there are millions and millions of Palestinians who are not citizens and have very limited freedom of movement and economic opportunities. And so, like you can say, Israel remains a democracy. It remains a democracy asterisk, except for the millions of people who do not participate in the governance of the country because they are not considered part of the country and so it's like this may be they may forestall the changes to the supreme court the crisis in israeli democracy is not going anywhere even if they protect the supreme court for the moment
2: That is absolutely true that the demographics are just exerting this inexorable pressure in all the ways you were talking about, and that this is a kind of a step along the way. Like, I get why it's such a crisis, but it is not going to stop all of that. We should talk about these protests. I mean, it is amazing to see people come out in force like this in a sustained way and stop their elected government, right? I mean, Netanyahu's coalition still has the 64 seats in the Knesset they need to pass this legislation. They have put it on hold because the country effectively ground to a halt on Sunday and Monday with a general strike, with, you know, reservists in the military refusing to serve. It's, it's just been this outpouring. And the people on the other side who want the changes to the court are saying, wait a second, we elected this government. Um, what happened to our majority rule? And it's a really good question, like how all of those forces play out. I guess one thing that particularly seemed effective was that the military reservists and others were making the argument that if you don't have the Israeli Supreme Court standing there, that the government could start ordering the military, ordering soldiers to do things that are illegal under international law and could get them prosecuted. And so this notion that there was a threat really to national security or to soldiers to their own legal exposure themselves, that seems to have helped um, carry these protests forward.
1: It undermined Netanyahu's claim that the protests were just being staged by elitists and foreign-funded radicals. I mean, when the military gets involved, And it's so widespread when you have 130,000 people taking to the streets and the airport shuts because of the, you know, it's more, it can't be uh, waved away as a kind of idiosyncratic cause of the left. It was, it it was, so I guess it's not just size, but kind.
0: John, just to close this topic, what do you make about the, the spat between Netanyahu and Biden, where the Biden administration has made it very clear that it, does not want Israel to push through these court changes and has been pretty overt about it. And Netanyahu is, has been saying, you know, we make our decisions. Israeli Israel makes decisions for Israel. And we're, you, you may be our friend, the United States, but this is not your business. Should the U.S. be nudging Israel? I mean, we nudge everyone all the time. Should we be nudging Israel?
1: Yeah, as you say, we nudge everyone all the time. What was different, I think, in this is that the nudge was super public. There was no behind-the-scenes nudging. Usually, often, I should say, when when Netanyahu came into power and there were a series of clashes, the U.S. took its normal posture, which was basically not to uh, criticize Netanyahu to basically stay hands-off. In this case, there was criticism, and it was verbal, and it was— not only public, but it was then framed as Netanyahu stepped back after talking to Biden on Sunday night. It's as loud as as the administration usually gets on these kind of things.
0: Slate Plus members, lucky you. You Slate Plus member, you. You became a member by going to slate.com slash GapFest And we do a bonus segment. And today's bonus segment for members is about the New revelations, incredible reporting by Peter Baker about the October surprise in 1980 and the, the fact that there is now more credible evidence that the allies of Ronald Reagan, maybe even the Reagan himself or certainly people very close to him, did pressure Iran not to release the hostages in order to help Reagan win the 1980 election over Jimmy Carter. So we'll talk about that story and what it means. Become a member by going to Slate.com slash Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: The future of America is in your hands.
2: This is not a movie trailer and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power
3: and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com
0: or wherever you listen to podcasts. TikTok CEO Shochu had an extremely unpleasant visit to the Capitol last week where a House committee, unified in bipartisan anger against China, declared that his wildly popular app is a danger to to American children, a tool of the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, and a threat to national security. Congress is moving to take decisive steps against TikTok. There's a a bill that's been uh, brooded about that would give President Biden or give the Commerce Department the authority to ban the app. John, Chu insists that that TikTok is acting independently of Chinese control. He outlined the company's uh, Texas project to move all the data of its U.S. customers inside the U.S., and he disavowed any bad intent. But Congress is just not interested, are they?
1: Whether Congress is interested or not, this was, as so often happens, it's basically a show trial. But it is, there are serious people of Congress who are not just part of the theatrics of that hearing. And they're in the left, you know, Republicans, Democrats, in the administration who believe that if China wanted to, it could get basically Byte Dance, the um, company that owns TikTok, to basically hand over what it wanted to, if they are not already doing it. And there's some evidence um, that people cite that suggests the Chinese government has gained access. And there is, you know, there is legitimate concern that either um, China will spread misinformation through TikTok, that it will use all the consumer behavior and personal behavior to inspire or to to basically, um, as the, the raw data to feed into artificial intelligence that could um, have all kinds of pernicious weaponized effects in the United States should the Chinese government choose to. And... China's gotten a lot more militaristic, um, you know, over the last few years, and the sort of broader competition with China has everybody up on their tiptoes. Um, so even though the show trial had all of the aspects of one of these kind of <sighs> theater events, there is a real concern about um, about TikTok and national security implications that's kind of feels more real than what you might dismiss as just show.
0: Emily, I think there are two, as John kind of outlined, there are two big lines of criticism of TikTok. One is that it is, could be a tool for taking data from Americans or about Americans that China could somehow exploit. And the second, which I would say is something different, it's a potentially tool for manipulating sentiment in America and elsewhere. So uh, the first one, true. True. The second one, isn't that also true of all the American social media platforms as well? Like, aren't the, all the criticisms that are being leveled at TikTok about how it can manipulate public opinion? I mean, we've already seen that Facebook is is an incredibly dangerous tool for that in, here, in the U.S. and in other countries.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the data mining is also something that the other social media platforms have. The only difference here is this kind of external threat from China. It's a real difference, but... I just feel like Congress, our government, our country is really behind and really struggling with how to regulate social media. The way it both undermines people's privacy with data collection um, and also potentially has this influence, both of those things are hard to grapple with. Um, We don't have a great tradition of privacy protections in the United States. And obviously, we have really robust free speech protections, which are important. But in this context, make it hard, I think, for us to really figure out what to do about the potential influence here, which we've seen, you know, in our 2020 election on some scale and which really have had enormous damaging effects abroad um, in ways that maybe couldn't happen here, but maybe could. I feel like the Europeans have been better at thinking these through, and they are ahead of us and could emerge as a model. And obviously, we're starting to see states trying to take this on themselves for better or worse. I mean, Utah, uh, I think this week, or certainly recently, um, put in place these, you know, much stronger safeguards for kids using social media and using apps than Congress has ever even, like, dreamed up, as far as I can tell. I don't really know what the solution is here, but the conversation feels like it's not rich enough. It's not on people's minds enough. And that listening to the show trial, I'm glad to hear, John, that you feel like there's some more serious discussion behind the scenes. And I guess I'm aware of that as well, but I would like to feel that it was being explored in a more serious way in public, um, along with the behind the scenes part.
1: Aren't they separate categories? It feels like the the challenges with social media and particularly with, Kids and what we've, what we've seen of its effect on mental health that that's one category. But what they're talking about here is state actors using it um, for malevolent purposes, and that seems a different category. But David, your point seems to prove the case for why they should be concerned. Given that social media has had such an effect on on US behavior, Imagine somebody even more skilled, with even more malevolent intent. It would be too hard to put that back in the bottle. So they're trying to grab it, stop that before it happens.
0: Emily, do you think the US has any special obligation to be pre- more protective of uh, of things like TikTok because we are the bastion of the first amendment and, you know, free speech, free speech. I mean, you you do see it in almost any country you can name that has any kind of authoritarian tendency has constrained, banned Radically changed how social media platforms are allowed to operate or even search engines are allowed to operate in that country. Like why should be we be different? why should we why should we allow things to be much wilder and freer?
2: Well, I mean, I think it is totally true that um, authoritarians are eager to ban engines of speech. And when we come in and do that, then they point to us as an example, and it seems to make acceptable actions that we then want to condemn abroad. So I think that is a real concern. The other thing that occurs to me here is that if we end up banning TikTok, then to the extent this just represents an opportunity to figure out some more helpful, smart way to regulate, we'll be totally missing it, right? I mean, if all we've got is you got to sell or we're going to ban you, we're not thinking through any of the data privacy or, you know, influence campaign prevention tactics that we might otherwise take that might be more broadly applicable. I mean, I totally take your point, John, that like this threat, this perceived threat from China is different from some of the other concerns about domestic social media companies. But to the extent there is this larger problem would be really good if we could use this opportunity to try to figure out some decent way to try to regulate here.
1: Don't you still have that opportunity with Instagram, Twitter, Meta, et cetera. I mean, you still, I agree with you that there's, that you do kind of wish somebody would come up with a technological fix that would allow, that would solve for the data privacy and misinformation piece, because why not take all this attention and turn smart brains towards it? But, um, but I mean, it's not like this is the only social media site out there that you could still do all the things you're talking about on the ones that exist
0: other than TikTok except they're all American. Yeah, it's just that we're yeah, not. Yeah, and they're American, they have really great <laughs> lobbyists. Well, I know we're not, but just
1: but just cuz you're not doing it in one just cuz you're not doing it in one instance doesn't mean you you're you shouldn't do anything about anything else in any other instance. The one thing I would say as a final point is if this restricting the emergence of security threats That Risk Information and Communications Technology Act or the Restrict Act, which seems to be the major piece of legislation that would go towards affecting TikTok, um, is that it would put the power, I believe, in the hands of the Commerce Secretary, which means whoever you want your next president to be could very well have the, the ability kind of basically unilaterally to shut down TikTok if it was determined that the information was Uh, that there was a national security threat from the way the information was being used.
0: Chris Christie showed up in New Hampshire this week, which is mostly sad, also slightly funny. But maybe there's a place for him. Is there a place for him, John? Is there a place for him in 2024 presidential politics for this former governor of New Jersey turned pundit?
1: I mean, it's just not where the party is. Uh, There are places for him in green rooms across the country, uh, or I should say in New York City. And there are places for him in the hearts of Republicans who wonder what happened to their party and how it got completely controlled by Donald Trump and now controlled by the patterns of behavior that Donald Trump um, has perfected during his life and um, and now that are being perfected by a whole new class of politicians. It's a pretty small group, though.
0: I mean, what's funny is that it's not like, I mean, mean, Christie's argument seems to be as outlined in new hampshire is i'm the only person who's enough of an asshole to beat trump because did you see how i was such an asshole to marco rubio back in 2016 i made marco rubio stutter i bullied marco rubio i mean he's trying to say i can be i can be a jerk like trump but but you know i'm i'm also a reasonable sensible human being who can exist so it's not as though he's disavowing that that bullying quality that trump has so so vastly
1: yeah i guess so i mean the, the the problem is there's just not an appetite there might not be a, there is an appetite for giving donald trump a gold watch and letting him go on and even if it required claiming that he was you know the greatest thing ever just get him off the stage and let somebody else come on there's that appetite i don't think there's the appetite to do it through a big pu- messy public uh, brawl of the kind that um that Christie's talking about because it's an embarrassment for the party. Because everything Christie says, which is all totally obvious about what Trump did in office and his effort to overthrow a free and fair election, it's stuff that the leadership of the party either explicitly or implicitly applauded. And is still doing. I mean, you know, when when at his Waco rally, he essentially held up the rioters of January 6th as laudable there was some murmuring. It's still the structure of the party. So he's not just fighting against a guy. He's fighting against the structure of a party that's built around what he would be fighting. But one great point that he does make about Marco Rubio, for someone who argues that campaigns don't tell us a great deal about what we should know about candidates, they definitely tell you whether they, whether a candidate can handle the heat, however the heat exists. And, that, and Marco Rubio obviously, you know, displayed that he couldn't in the hurly-burly of a campaign. And that is one useful thing that campaigns show is whether, since you're tested a lot in the job, it's a way of testing a candidate to see if they have poise under, you know, ridiculous circumstances, which is kind of one of the things you have to do in the job.
2: If you're DeSantis or Haley, do you want Christie to stay in there? Do you want him on the debate stage trying to Bully Trump or embarrass Trump because you don't want to directly take him on, but it could be helpful to you to have Trump wounded in that way.
1: It's a great question. The, the one's instinct would be yes. The question, though, then is: We saw when there were these um, rumors that many people chased after that the DA was going to indict Trump. There was some pressure on DeSantis to speak out in Trump's defense. You could imagine a situation in which Christie beats up on Trump and that's all great for Haley and DeSantis, although I should hesitate to say in the most recent Fox poll, DeSantis and Haley's numbers have gone down since they either got in the race or got in the conversation about the race. So as Trump is attacked, sometimes people rally around him. But under traditional circumstances, you think it's great. Let them let it be a kind of murder suicide pact. Um, the way that happened with uh, Dick Gephardt and um, Howard Dean in 2004, where John Kerry was the beneficiary of their fight. Um, But there is this kind of purity test in the party where you have to defend Donald Trump. Um, And so you could imagine a situation where DeSantis and Haley are asked, you know, what do you think about these terrible things that, that Chris Christie is saying? Um, And in bungling their response, they end up diminishing themselves that's one of the parts of the modern party that make it tough to run in there.
0: Color me skeptical that Chris Christie would ever actually run a suicide mission. I think Liz Cheney would do a suicide mission. If Liz Cheney felt like I have to run for president just to lose, but to, but to take down Trump, she would definitely do it. It would be awesome. And she would do it with nobility and, and bravery. Christie is a venal selfish person. He does not, has never seemed like a person who wants to self abnegate, he wants to win. He wants glory for himself. And I think he would find it actually very hard to run a campaign that was simply suicidal for the sake of damaging Trump. He doesn't care about he's, – he's not actually that interested in damaging Trump to protect the country. That's not his game. His game is Chris Christie. He is a self-protective cat.
1: So play that out. How does that – so he's now said, and he's said this many times already. This is just he happened to say it in New Hampshire, so it got covered. But he's been saying for some time all these things about Trump. So you're, you're saying that he'll keep doing this and then at some point he'll stop doing that? How is that politically successful?
0: He would just discover that he's not getting any traction, that he's actually not going anywhere. And if he discovered he wasn't getting any traction, he's not going to stay in it. Right. But so play that out. So he so he discovers that.
1: And then what? He changes behavior. When he changes behavior, he'll he'll crater even faster than before. Yeah, I was I was a man of principle. And now I'm not. And I took on this guy because the precondition for buckling, as you're describing, would be that Trump is so powerful, he couldn't scratch him. So now, basically, Christie is a walking scalp. So just as a political matter, it seems that that would, I mean, he would basically, that would be right the day before he dropped out of the race.
2: I mean, isn't this why Christie probably won't get in in the end and this is a bid for attention?
1: That's probably the wisest take, yes, is to do flirting up your, you know, reputation. Um, erase some of the fact that you helped Trump so much at various different times when he was in office, when all of this stuff that you're now complaining about was pretty obvious. Um, and that helps your speaking fees and your your ability to be booked on shows and that kind of thing.
0: Can we just close this topic by returning to something you, you hinted at a second ago, which was, is DeSantis in a, some kind of stumble, or is that just an anomaly or just temporal, not not really anything worth noticing?
1: Well, I mean, you know, you, you'd rather have a poll come out where you're doing better than you were when you started, and you'd rather see Donald Trump doing better more poorly after he gets, you know, goes through additional legal challenges, which everybody knows already. But the fact that Mike Pence was compelled to testify and all these other Trump um, aides are being compelled to testify in front of the um, special counsel is not good for Donald Trump. But his numbers are getting better. I think DeSantis is having, you know, predictable stumbles out of the gate. It happens to everybody. It's happened even to people who are considered great campaigners like Uh, Barack Obama, who was considered um, a disaster um, until the fall um, before he then turned it all around um, in, in Iowa. So, you know, there are stumbles. I think that people looked at Obama and said, wow, he is a raw natural talent across all kinds of different landscapes. I don't think anybody has accused DeSantis of that. I think he has had amazing success in Florida and so forth. As he stumbles, I think one of his challenges is people think, hmm, he's got kind of a velvet coffin in Florida, which is like, he's really good there, but he doesn't travel well, to mix the metaphor. Um, and so what what he has to show his Republican donors and the rest of them is that he travels well, that people, and this is a problem, of course, that um, happened with Scott Walker in Wisconsin as well, that like all of the hype has something behind it. And it's also super hard to run against Donald Trump. He is, um, he's he he has a lock on a huge chunk of the party, and he is very good at messing with you. DeSantis, it's, it's not going great for him, but um,
0: it's kind of to be expected. I cannot think of a place that would be less comfortable than being in a velvet coffin in Florida. <laughs> like velvet, very uncomfortable. Coffin, uncomfortable. Hot. In Florida, where it's, like, hot and humid, Oh. That
1: that's what awful. that's the term they used to use for, art. I think this is note. true, for artists who were really popular
0: in Austin, Texas, but could never become huge hits nationwide. The Velvet Coffin. Yeah, people used to say that about working at the LA Times, that the LA Times back in the 80s and 90s was the Velvet Coffin. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting around having a velvety drink of some sort, Emily, what would you be chattering about?
2: I started listening to a podcast that I'm, Really taken with so far. It's called Violation. It's from the Marshall Project and WBUR. The host is uh, Beth Schwartzopfal, and it's about a terrible murder at a summer camp in 1986. The person who committed the murder is Jacob Weidman, who's the son of John Edgar Weidman, um, a writer who I deeply admire. He wrote an amazing book called Brothers and Keepers that I like remember well. And this is a terrible killing. Jacob Weidman, when he committed this murder, was 16. He didn't know why he did it. He was having serious mental health problems and got an incredibly long sentence, then somehow got parole, but then got returned to prison, in part because the victim's family was very upset that he'd been released. Since I've just started, I don't know the story yet, but Beth is a really good um host and i think that there'll be a lot of exploration of the mysteries of parole boards as well as the um just like craziness of this particular case. So anyway, Violation uh narrative podcast uh check it out.
0: Is that like As close as Emily Bazelon gets to true crime. It's like you don't go to the salacious true crime. You're like parole board true crime.
2: Exactly. True innocence, true, you know, explorations of deep issues in the legal system. Yeah, it's like uh, pretend highbrow true crime, maybe. No, I mean, this is really good. I don't want to be mixing people up about that.
0: John Dickerson, what is your chatter?
1: Uh, My chatter is a um, a Twitter thread by someone named George Mack, which is... um, Uh, My favorite questions in 2023, what is ignored by the media, but will be studied by historians? And then there are nine examples. The first is the the fentanyl pandemic, and its just size and sweep and effect on American life. The second one is the rise of negative media. The third is the homeschooling boom. You can look up the rest of them and uh, just search for at George underscore underscore Mac. But it's um, it's a favorite topic of mine uh, because I think all of the things that he cites are totally true. And also when we get into a presidential campaign, obviously I bang on about the difference between what's objectively the subject of most concern and what's the thing that gets most discussed. And this is a great list for keeping focused on what is objectively of of the largest effect and impact on American life and should draw our attention.
0: I would also recommend a sort of a, a counterweight to that, John. Did you see Matt sub substack? He has a piece about that Twitter thread, actually.
1: Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know. I didn't see it. What did you say?
0: He said, there's a sort of tendency to blame the media for not covering things but that when it comes to a lot of these issues it's not the media doesn't cover them it's that readers don't want to read it readers will not pay attention to what is being told to them and he's in particular he talks about the fentanyl epidemic as an example of a story which which the media tries and tries and tries to get the public interested in but the public doesn't get interested in for reasons that he talks about is having to do with sort of a lot of the dynamics of it's a story that doesn't have a solution attached to it and that people get very frustrated and so they kind of don't want to hear about it and they tune it out. Um read you should read the piece, see what you think. I will chatter about a wonderful story in the Washington Post by Greg Miller. Uh he came to DC as a Brazilian student. The US says he was a Russian spy. It's about a Johns Hopkins graduate student named Victor Ferreira, who has been unmasked as a, as a Russian agent who was named Sergei Cherkasov, And he was under deep cover for 14 years um, and, and built an identity in Brazil and in various other countries, but all sort of playing a very long game. A la the Americans uh, to, to, gain access to institutions in Washington and particularly around foreign policy. And he, he didn't get very far. He spent a long time and then was unmasked sort of during his first internship, but it was a really interesting story about the lengths to which people are going to do to, to embed themselves as spies and uh, as the, the craft work involved, the manipulation of Brazilians Brazil's national record system involved to get him an ID. The the lies he was telling to people about why he didn't speak Portuguese very well, why he had a Russian accent, all these things um, are fascinating to read. So check it out in the post by Greg Miller. Listeners, you have sent us chatter after chatter after chatter, and you tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest, and you. More usefully, email them to us at at gabfest.slate.com. Please keep them coming, something you're talking about at your cocktail party. And this week's uh, listener chatter comes from Judy.
3: Hello, GabFest. My name is Judy, and I'm from the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. My chatter today is about an eight-part podcast series called The Gate Crashers. Each episode explores the history of Jews at a different Ivy League school. In the first episode about Columbia University, I learned that the college application process as we know it today, the interviews, trying to diversify the student body, even the application itself came about because there were just too many Jews getting in. Interestingly, the Jewish kids were seen as too serious of students. They went home at night and studied instead of taking part in campus activities like sports and acapella. I enjoyed every episode, and I hope you do too.
0: That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? So really interesting story. Actually, is from more like two weeks ago than this week. Um, but we forgot to talk about it last week or we just neglected to. But it was a story by Peter Baker uh, in the New York Times and it's based on reporting he did. He, he was spoke to a man named Ben Barnes and Ben Barnes had been a prominent figure in Texas Democratic Party circles. Uh, he'd been the youngest speaker of the Texas State House, I believe. Um, and he'd been an ally of John Connolly, John Connolly had been the Democratic governor of Texas. He was wounded, actually, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. He was riding in the car in front of Kennedy and was wounded in that assassination. Um, And Connolly later would become a Republican, later a potential rival to Ronald Reagan when Ronald Reagan was going to run for president, and by 1980 was a close ally of Reagan and wanted a position as probably Secretary of State in Potential Reagan administration. And so Connolly set out to try to help Reagan. And Barnes claims that he and Connolly took a trip in the summer of 1980 to warn other countries in the region to tell Iran not to release the hostages because they would get a better deal if the hostages were released when Reagan was president. And there is strong evidence that. Barnes and Connolly took this trip, for sure. There's corroborating evidence of meetings that they held. Barnes told four different people over the course of the past 40 years that this had taken place and that Connolly had told these these Arab governments, for the most part, that they should discourage Iran from releasing the hostages. So there's a lot of corroborating evidence. Nothing dispositive, but a lot of evidence. So, um, John... You know, this is a this has long been a, a rumor about the Reagan campaign. What did you make of the story?
1: Yeah, it's been a rumor. The the two biggest things that have knocked it down are the congressional investigations into this that found found um, didn't find corroboration, and even Gary Sick, who had written about the October Surprise and has um, he was interviewed by. Um, John Yang of, of PBS NewsHour, and he basically said, you know, we we had this pretty well figured out, and I had, Sick wrote a book about the October Surprise um, in 1991, and he said basically the people I was relying on, my sources, were not the kinds of people that you would trust. I mean, they were all not credible. Um so it was it had been out there but it was always kind of like well this could be one of those conspiracy theories that bounces around the Middle East because there are a lot of them. So this was the most this was the most kind of establishment proof that this happened. Um and so it was it was it's one of those things that um that kind of everybody thinks they know but this really seemed to kind of now
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation if you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.
3: Hi.